Father, we thank you for this opportunity to meet together and to hear from your word. Lord, will you set a guard over my lips and a watch over the door of my mouth that every word from my mouth will be Father filtered. And Father, will you give us listening ears to hear what you want to say? And uh, we just thank you that you are such a loving God and that you are a God of truth, that your truth is paramount. Whatever is going on in the world, you are the way, the truth, and the life, as we heard earlier in that song. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Right, so um, we're going through the Jesus Lifestyle, which is a, a Nicky Gumbel book. You seem so far away. <laughs> do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to move down here. There we go. That feels a bit more friendly. Um, so um, I have got the chapter on how to understand the Old Testament. Um, well, you laugh. I was so excited <laughs> to get this one. I thought, oh, I want to do that one. I hope nobody else has got it. <laughs> I love the Old Testament. I didn't always, but I do now. Um, I'm going to start by reading the verses. Um, I, I will say to you that I haven't stuck very closely to the book because for me it didn't really go deep enough. <laughs> so I hope I'm not going to um, turn you off it. I might, my intention is that you'll learn how to love it and how to look at it. Okay, so the verses I got today. Um, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if that passage worries you, don't let it. Remember that the Beatitudes, when Jesus taught the Beatitudes, it was pre-crucifixion. Um, and um, Jesus kept the law perfectly. And if we are in him, he has done that on our behalf. Um, it doesn't mean that the law is invalid. It just means that he has fulfilled it. So I don't know if you find that helpful. Okay. So it's a pretty tall order. Um, if you think of the law as the Ten Commandments, you're quite right. Um, it is, but there's a whole lot more laws in the first five books of the Bible. And to our eyes, they seem very detailed, pernickety, and very odd. <laughs> But he did make us, Jesus did make things easier for us when he summarized the law into two great commandments. Um, and um, this is the scripture. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So that's everything in the Old Testament can be condensed into those two commandments. I don't know about you, but when I was younger, um, I used to think that the Old Testament God was different from the New Testament God. Um, and when I came back to the Lord in my early 30s, I can remember having an interview with the pastor of the church that I was at. 
um, where I said that to him, and he, he looked at me sort of askance and said, yeah, I thought you probably thought that. <laughs> and over the years at that church, I learned a great love uh, for the Old Testament, for the stories in it, um, even in the genealogies, the, the genealogies are there for a, a purpose. So um, I'm hoping that you will learn a love too, if you haven't already got one. I'm sure that some of you have. But there's an old adage that puts it well. Um, yeah, there's a, um, the, the Old Testament, it, you can look at the Old Testament, you can still see Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, there's an old adage that puts that well. Um, the New Testament is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. And what I want to do now is to show you a few of the things I've discovered by looking at it over the years. Um, I've picked out some things where I thought... Uh, there's, there's a, I'm going to stick to my notes instead of trying to go off on one because I'm just going to get in a tangle if I do. So you think of it like this picture... Okay, so um, the Old Testament, with its five books of the law, which the Jews call the Torah, the histories, Kings, Chronicles, Ruth, Esther, and the books of Samuel, though Samuel was a prophet as well, and the prophets, and all of those are pointing towards the cross. The New Testament, largely, we look back at the cross. Even though Revelation might be said to be looking forward to the return of Jesus, there could be no return without the cross coming first. So all of history centers on the cross. It's, I think that's a very good picture that it all points to him. He's, the, the cross is right at the center of history. The Old Testament looking forward and the New Testament looking back. But in all this, the new and the old are also intertwined. And if that doesn't convince you, um, St. Paul tells us in his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the Old Testament, there are many what I call reverse echoes of Jesus. And the coming of Jesus and the things that happened in our, our beloved New Testament are foreshadowed over and over in the Old so I'm going to start by explaining what the Old Testament is. Testament is another word for covenant. Um, they mean the same thing. So the Old Testament consists of the scriptures that were given to the Jewish people by God and is named for the covenant cut by God himself with Abraham. Now this is going to be a little bit graphic, it has to be, but if we downplay this then we don't really understand the enormity of the sacrifice that Jesus made. God is a God of justice as well as mercy. And in his justice, as it tells us in Romans 6.23, the wages of our sin is death. In his justice, there must be the spilling of blood. Hebrews 9.22 says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So in his justice, he has to spill blood, or we have to spill blood. In his mercy... It's not our blood that he spills. In the Old Testament, it was the blood of animals. Um, but in the New, it's Jesus' blood that cleanses us once for all. A covenant was an unbreakable promise. It was unthinkable in those times to break a covenant that was made. We don't have anything equivalent to that today. I think you, you can hear talk of covenants in 
legal issues um, land. Um, I suppose the closest thing would be marriage, but even that has been eroded somewhat um, by the secular world. In those times, a covenant was made between two people or tribes. The head of each tribe would bring animals, which would be cut in half. The spilling of blood, which represented their own blood, would be to prove how serious the promises were that were made from one to the other. Now, don't think they sacrificed animals because they didn't value them. They did value them. They were their livelihood. They, they valued their animals very highly. Um, so it, they were, it was expensive. Making a covenant was an, an expensive. It was sacrificial. The heads of the tribes or families would walk together between the cut animals, and in doing so, the whole tribe or family would be bound, and in breaking the covenant, their lives would be forfeit. It was really serious stuff. Now, the interesting thing about the covenant made between Abraham and God was that Abraham didn't have to make any promise at all. Um, it's in Genesis 15, and God comes to Abraham, and he basically says, I love you, Abraham, and I want to reward you. So Abraham says, but Lord, it's too late. You can't give me the thing I really want. All I wanted was a son to give my estate to, but I'm old, and when I die, my estate will go to my servant. So in this beautiful passage, God tells Abraham he'll have a son of his own flesh and blood, and that his offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Then, after the animals have been cut, he puts Abraham into a deep sleep, and he walks between the animals himself. Um, so Abram doesn't have to do anything. And this was what was called, the walking between was called the cutting of the covenant. So the New Testament, or the New Covenant, was cut by the death of Jesus. The sacrificial offering was the Lord himself. The passing between was as he hung between the two thieves. And once again, the covenant required everything of God and nothing from us. But his sacrifice is an unbreakable promise of salvation for us. Now, it was around this time, which just after, actually, in 70 AD, after the crucifixion, that um, the Jewish people stopped making animal sacrifices. The destruction of the temple meant that they didn't have a place where they could do it. Um, they believed they had to have the temple to, to make their sacrifices. But personally, I believe there are no coincidences Jesus' sacrifice was offered once for all, so we don't have to sacrifice animals as required by the law. Um, I found another little scripture um, that really lit my fire <laughs> from the Old Testament and it, that gives us greater understanding of the new. Um, in Leviticus 16, 6 to 10, it tells us of the sacrifice of two goats. I think I'm, I'm right in saying this was for the Day of Atonement, but don't quote me on that. I haven't checked it out. Um, the two goats, one was for the atonement of men. So to do this, they symbolically laid on it, they laid their hands on it, and they laid on it all the sins of man, and they sent it into the wilderness, and they called it the scapegoat. The second goat was a sin offering to the Lord, and this one was sacrificed. So the parallel here in the New Testament is easy. At the beginning of his ministry, I don't know if you remember, um, Jesus was uh, in the wilderness for 40 days. That was right at the start of his ministry, which means that was the start of his work of atonement for man. And at the end, of course, he became the sacrificial lamb. 
Okay, so it was, it was against this background that Abraham took his son, his promised son, and prepared to sacrifice him to the Lord. Abraham came from, I think I'm right in saying, Ur of the Chaldeans, where the practice of child sacrifice to the evil god Molech was common. And what is unthinkable to us, he'd seen it as a daily occurrence. But even so, his sorrow and grief must have been immense. God had given him the promised son, but now he was taking him away. His words of faith, I've made those too small, haven't I? Can you see it? Shall I read it to you? Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering for my, my son. And the two of them went on together. So Abraham's faith was rewarded. God did indeed provide a ram, um, which was in the bushes, um, instead of Isaac. But those words of faith echo down the centuries and point straight to the cross. God himself provided the lamb, not just for the redemption of Isaac, but for the redemption of the human race. Okay, if all that's been a bit blood and gutsy for your taste, <laughs> it was quite hard to write. Um, we're going to move on to a love story and see what we can glean from that. So we're going to move on to Ruth. So you know the story, Naomi and Ruth. Um, uh, Naomi was the wife of Elimelech, um, and there was famine in the land, and they went to the enemy country of Moab. Um, in order to live, um, where their sons, Marlon and Killian, married women of Moab. So they were marrying enemy women. Uh, Marlon, Killian, and Elimelech all died. The Bible doesn't say how, but they were living in enemy country. There was a great hatred between Moab and Israel. So Naomi, in despair, turns to returns to Bethlehem, where they lived. Now, it's interesting to note that Bethlehem, Beit Lechem, um, translated is house of bread. So they were going from the land of the enemy back to the house of bread. They still had, Naomi would still have had the land, which was her husband's land, um, the land, the importance of land and inheritance is very high in Israel. Uh, that's why you get the genealogies so that they can prove who they are and that the land, particular pieces of land belonged to them. So she still had it, um, but it would have lain fallow. Uh, it would have, it's gone through a, a famine. 
And she had no men and no money to set it to rights. So she and her daughter Ruth, were, her daughter-in-law Ruth, were doomed to poverty and destitution. Um, and in the story, Boaz, who is termed their kinsman redeemer, redeems the land, buys the land, and in buying the land, he has to marry the widow so that the family line is not broken. And that's a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done for us. He's redeemed us from the land of the enemy. Um, he's bought us, and we have an inheritance in him. Um, I love that story. If you, if you don't read the Old Testament much, um, then the stories of Ruth and Esther are beautiful stories, just, just great stories. Um, now I'm going to tell you about um, the tzitzit. This is the Jewish name for tassels. Um, this is the scripture. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. It will be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you played the harlot, so that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. That's Numbers 15, 37 to 41. Now these tassels, if you go to Israel, you can still see them on the clothes of Jewish men. They tend to wear them tucked into their jeans. Um, they don't usually have the blue cord in them because the Jews are quite legalistic about things and they can't reproduce the exact shade of blue. So rather than produce, reproduce it wrongly, they, they just have them cream. And sometimes some people wear blue ones. Um, now then, you might not think that has any relevance to us. They, they, um, they do have them on the corners, they're prayer shawls. I, I've got a female prayer shawl here that somebody gave me as a gift once. So if you want to look at that, but it's these bits. These bits here, and that would normally have a blue cord. I mean, if you want to look at it, I will leave it there and you can take a look. It's, I, it was a beautiful gift, I was really blessed by it. Um, a man's prayer shawl would be a lot bigger than that. Now I'm going to a well-known story in the New Testament. I've done these too small. I'm not very expert at this, I'm afraid. But I'll read you the, um, the scripture anyway. Luke 8, from 40 to 42. Uh, 42... 44, yeah, sorry. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Um, it's still an amazing story if you don't look at it in the context of the Old Testament, but in my opinion, it loses a lot of impact if you don't. So what, what we need to recognize from the laws in the Old Testament is that a woman who was bleeding was exiled to outside the camp. 
It's not as barbaric as it seems, because as most of you probably know, that when women live and work together, their cycles coincide. So it would have been a great big party, women's party outside the camp. Um, I don't know how, exactly how this happened in practice in Jesus' time, but I do know that religious Jews um, would have avoided women, um, except for their family, because they couldn't know whether or not a woman was bleeding. And I've actually had this happen to me. I've had, on a British Airways flight to Israel, I, had a young, I was next to a young Orthodox Jew, and he, ha he asked to be moved. And I met um, an, an ultra-Orthodox Jew in Venice who refused to shake my hand. He said it was out of respect for women, but I know perfectly well it's because he couldn't tell whether or not I was on my period. Um, it means that men are, uh, I think, that the woman is unclean for uh, uh, seven days, and I think the men are clean, unclean for, it might be seven days, it, it might be a day, but anyway, it was, you know, they wouldn't want to be unclean, ritually unclean, I mean. So this woman, who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, would have been an outcast in her own society. She would know that she shouldn't touch the Rabbi Jesus, because she was ritually unclean in the eyes of the law. It says in Leviticus 25, when a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than, other than her monthly period, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge, just as in the days of her period. That's why she didn't approach Jesus to ask for healing. That's why she tried to secretly touch the hem of his robe without him knowing. The thing I find quite exciting is that the word hem can be translated as border, trim, or tassel. So the part of Jesus' robe that she touched was holy. It was the reminder that sits it, the reminder of the presence of God that keeps a man from going the way of his own heart. So now we're going to move on to Elisha. And I bet there's something in here that you don't know. <laughs> it took me years to pick this one up. So you've read the stories of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. Now, the first thing to say about these is don't make the mistake of thinking that these are the same miracle told in different ways. They're not. They're two separate miracles. Um, Jesus himself tells us that in Mark 8, 19 to 20. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. These two miracles are actually worth a study in their own right, so I'm not going to spend very long on them. But why, what is there that might reflect in the Old Testament? In 2 Kings chapter 4, there are a couple of short verses that are quite easy to overlook, but you might be surprised by them. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread. That's like pita bread, little pita breads. 20 loaves of barley bread, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat. For this is what the Lord says, they will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. Elisha was one of the great prophets in Israel. He was given a double portion of what Elijah had. 
The great miracle of feeding a hundred men with a few heads of grain and 20 small pieces of pita bread was surpassed not once but twice by the Lord Jesus. So what the Lord was saying with the miracles of the feeding of four and five thousand was that here was one whose power and holiness surpassed that of the great prophets of old. Um, and another small one that I love. If you've ever done the Passover Seder meal here, you'll know that there's in, in the Passover meal, they have um, four cups and a cup that they set for Elijah. So it's kind of like saying um, the expected Messiah. So it's a cup that nobody touches. Um, in, the, in the Last Supper, when Jesus took the cup, it was the cup of Elijah that he took. So that would have been him saying again, I am the promised Messiah. I am the one that you are expecting to come. So these are the things that came to mind as I was preparing, but there are many more. Um, and I've got some things to say um, about the Old Testament. If you struggle with the Old Testament, there are some things I can say that might help. For me, in places, the Old Testament reads like a daily newspaper. There's so much bad news and barbaric things that happen, happen that are outrageous to our eyes. But it helps to remember what it says repeatedly in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What the Bible does is it tells the story, and particularly in the Old Testament, it doesn't always comment on the morality of what has been done. When God encourages his people to go to war to, against the enemy, it helps to remember that in the heavenly war, there is only one enemy. And sometimes people will come into agreement with him instead of with God. The peoples that God um, fought against through his people were inherently evil with practices that we would abhor. Um, particularly, they worshipped the god Molech and would sacrifice their children. Um, through the fire. It's just horrible, horrible stuff. Um, and if you think that doesn't happen today, um, think of ISIS, for instance. When Canon Andrew White tried to approach them to broker reconciliation, their answer was, well, you can come, but if you do, we will cut off your head. So when even a man of complete peace, such as Andrew White, says these people are just evil, then we know that it's possible for people to be completely attuned to the enemy's way. When God calls for total destruction in the Old Testament, he, it's because he knows it's the only way to get rid of the enemy's poison. And you can be certainly sure that he weeps over it. I'm absolutely convinced he weeps over it. So this is the final bit I've got um, to say to you. Finally, when you read the Old Testament... Ask God to show you how this can enlighten your understanding of the new. You can ask him, how, Lord, does this foreshadow Jesus? How is it relevant for me today? Now, I finished um, quite early, which I'm quite pleased about, because I wanted to say to you, if you have any burning questions, I'm not an expert, but I will try to answer them. So we'll have a little Q&A session. So off you go. I'm hoping you've got some. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I said to the Lord, Lord, I really can't do this. Mm. How is this going to 
Right, okay. So um, the genealogies were there, um, as I said earlier. That uh, They're in the part of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible, which was the Torah, the law, um, for the Jews. Um, and the genealogies were important because God called the Jews to live apart. So he hates a mixture. He, he didn't want them to inter, inter, interbreed. So they were supposed to keep to themselves because he set them apart as a holy people for himself. And he knew that mixing the blood um, would um, bring in a, a lot of worship of evil gods. Um, so the genealogies are there for them to say where they came from, to say where their family line came from. And it's particularly important in the New Testament that the genealogies of Jesus are there because that was saying to the Jews, this is, this is the person who has been foretold in the genealogy, he, it, and particularly the fact that he came from the line of David. Um, I don't know how useful it is for us to read through them, uh, there are a couple of gems in there, like the, uh, the laws of uh, the um, prayer of Jabez. And um, I think the thing about enlarging your tents is in there as well. Um, so it's worth persevering, but I don't think you need to beat yourself up over it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is. It was, it was about the family line. It was about where people came from and the importance of the individual as well. Um, they had, I mean, we don't think nearly as much as they did of our family and our land. If they had their family line, um, they could then lay claim to the land that was theirs. Um, and it was so, so important to them. And even now, um, after the Holocaust, there was a great problem for the Jewish people because many, many of them had lost the proof that they were who they were. And it, it, that was devastating for them. Um, but that you have to remember that those books were given to the Jewish people. They are important for us as well. I'm not saying they're not, <laughs> but they were given to the Jewish people. And there's a lot of stuff in there that really only has a huge significance to them. Don't know if that helps. No, well, it doesn't help you to read the names, but I don't think anything can do that really. But if you look at them, sometimes you'll see a name in there and you think, oh, I didn't know he belonged to that family. Um, <laughs> but I have to admit, I've not really got over that one either. Mm. Anybody else? Please ask me some questions. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I, I can't tell you what the Hebrew says. My husband would be able to tell you. Um, but it's probably something to do with prayer. These look like the mezuzah, which they put on the doors of their houses, which have, um, I think it's, um, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But no, the Lord your God is one God. That's it. The Lord your God is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I think that's what they have in the mezuzah. Um, but... I can't read the Hebrew, <laughs> I'm sorry. But if anybody wants to look at it and photograph it, you might be able to get a translation from Google. You never know. Um, over their heads. They, if, you, if they were praying, they would, they would wear them over their heads like this, cover their heads to pray. 
um, and you'll see them at the, the wall um, in Jerusalem when you go there. Um, the, the men all have their heads covered when they're praying, and they do a lot of this. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. There is so much in there, and every time you read it... And I think also, if you understand where it was coming from, the prophets, for instance, I always found the prophets really hard going, because there's a lot of blood and guts and stuff in there. But actually, the prophets, if you look at when they were written, there was a whole period of time when the Jews were exiled from, um, from Israel. Uh, I think it was 70 years. Um, and the prophets all speak about either they're, they're disobedient to God, so they're going to be exiled, or they need to be in exile, or what's going to happen after their exile. So the prophets are all about that, as well as about foretelling the coming of Jesus. And, it, and it's, it's helpful to understand what those, those books, why the books are there and what they mean, you know, what they were, what they were put there for. Anybody else got anything burning? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, that, yeah. Um, there are scholars that would say that there is one because the genealogies in different gospels are different. So um, there are scholars that say one genealogy was of Joseph and the other was of Mary. Yeah. And there were women in the genealogies because Ruth is in there. Um, Ruth, who was a Moabitess, which means that Jesus is um, not just for the Jews. Um, there's Tamar, who was, um, um, she was raped, I think, wasn't she? She's a Tamar that was raped. Um, and there's um, Rahab, who was a prostitute. And the fourth one, I can't remember, there's four, isn't there? Oh, that's Tamar. That's Tamar, yeah. I can't remember who the fourth one is. But anyway, the, you know, there are women in the genealogies as well. Yeah. Rahab was the one that lowered a basket um, on a red cord um, down, down the walls so that the spies could get away. <laughs> it's telling you half a story. Yes. No question, stupid. Because they they were because they came before Jesus before Jesus died for us. God set them apart as a people for himself to be a witness 
to the fact that he's God. Now that Jesus has come and died for us, Jesus is the witness. Um, and he, he was Jewish and he fulfilled the Jewish law perfectly, which is why if we're in him, we don't have to. Um, there, are, there are people who will, <laughs> who will say, you know, why don't we have to keep the law the way the Jews do? Um, and if you speak to a Jewish person who is a Christian as well, they're called messi messianic believers, they have huge arg arg arguments going on about whether or not they should keep kosher or not. Um, one very famous speaker I heard said, well, when I'm with the Jews, I keep kosher. When I'm not, I don't. <laughs> so... Yeah, they, their Bible is just the Old Testament, even today. Um, and they don't really read a lot of Isaiah because there's so much in Isaiah that speaks about Jesus. If they read it, they would have to accept him. So he's not really, uh, Isaiah's not really taught much in the synagogues, as I understand it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 